Hello, and welcome to the first episode of the Salty Science Safari, where we shed light on the challenges faced by our oceans and the science we use to help conserve our oceanic resources. In our first episode, we are going to talk about overfishing. To be more specific, the overfishing crisis in developing countries. To start off, I interviewed a few students studying marine biology at James Cook University in Australia to understand the state of fisheries in each of their countries. Some of the students were from developed countries and some of them were from countries that are still developing. While all countries did have issues that need attention to help save our oceans, there was one stark difference between the two. The issue of governance. Fisheries around the world involve two main bodies, the fishermen and the governing bodies that regulate their activity. Developed nations like the United States, Canada and Australia have highly organized fisheries sectors with a streamlined workflow where the central government authority and their decrees reign supreme. But in developing nations, the lack of resources and the sheer size of fishing communities make it near impossible to govern through a central governing scheme. So how do we solve the overfishing crisis in developing nations? To help us, we have a special guest joining us today. All right, and today we are joined by Dr. Naveen Nambutri. He is a founder at Dakshin Foundation, and he heads the Sustainable Fisheries Asian programs over there. He has worked in diverse coastal and marine ecosystems across India, particularly focusing on its island systems. He also oversees the establishment and implementation of several marine conservation projects, such as the community-led fisheries management in Lakshadweep and the Andaman Islands in India. So thank you so much for joining us here today. Now, what are the issues that you or the organizations in India face when implementing conservation practices? And how do they differ from, let's say, the issues faced by Western or more developed countries? Uh, this is specifically relation, related to fisheries and fisheries resources, right? Yes. Yeah. Well, um, specifically with you know marine conservation challenges vis-a-vis -vis fisheries, uh, one of the major things to uh, you know one of the major ways in which the sector itself is quite different from what how it kind of operates within, say, developed countries or in the, the first world countries, if one may, is by, uh, you know, being quite diverse. The, the fisheries in, say, countries like India A are very diverse in terms of the scale, in terms of how it, uh, you know, in terms of the associated practices, the cultures. So any particular village can have, you know, there are, and it, so first is the diversity part, and second is the scale part. And scale-wise, I don't mean this in terms of the quantity of fish that's harvested, but the the, the way the operations are conducted. So every every two or three kilometers on along the coastline of say a country like India, there is a fishing village that or a fishing hamlet that one will come across, and each of them have their own very you know unique practices. Uh, you know, the kind of resources they target are different, the kind of crops and gills that you uh, come across are different. So it is a highly 
participated as well as an extremely diverse kind of uh, sector. And to try and govern a sector like this is not something that is easy. It's a huge challenge. And unfortunately, applying the kind of Western kind of models to managing or governing the resources here for such a diverse and dissipated kind of a sector becomes very problematic. And to the large extent, the, the marine, coastal and marine, uh, you know, systems have kind of copy-pasted from terrestrial models of management. And that is absolutely, you know, is a complete misfit in most cases, right? You know, be it marine protected area kind of concepts or be it species level protection, you know, all of those are extremely problematic when you apply it to a really high use kind of a system like tropical you know, near shore ecosystems. All right, thank you so much. And in terms of that, um, in terms of how the governments react to um, these issues, it, when I was speaking and I have interviewed people from here as well in terms of students from various countries, mostly developed ones, asking about how their governments react to these issues and how their governments, if they implement a conservation strategy, how they go about it. And they normally say they go about by implementing these rules and then carrying them forward. And these rules are pretty much followed because that is the law. How, how is it different that our government uh, reacts to these problems and what are the solutions or how do we implement solutions? Yeah, uh, A, first and foremost is one need to drop all the existing baggages of how conservation is, is kind of conceptualized. And, you know, it's a very dominant protectionist fortress conservation kind of model that usually people kind of associate with when, when one thinks of conservation. But uh, especially, say, in sectors like fisheries in, in near-show, I use marine ecosystems, one really needs to have, and like I said, in dissipated and in kind of distributed diverse kind of fisheries, you really do need to explore more decentralization. And it's not fair to assume that it's only certain section of the society that's interested in sustainability or issues of conservation, it is actually something that's also very critical to the fisher communities because directly relates to their livelihoods, it directly re relates to their access to these ecosystems. They sustain, you know, the, the sustainability of fish stocks really do matter to fisher communities. And it's really unfortunate that, you know, conventional conservation models do not create those spaces that are that helps bring in, you know, this particular stakeholder to the table, right? And, and that's one of the major drawbacks that I feel. And how do you go about it? There are models that have, say, for instance, models of co-management, models of you know, traditional governance systems, and all of that, that is increasingly being talked about, but it still, uh, you know, remains a very academic exercise and to actually convert it into something that's practical and implementable in the field. You know, what I mean to say is there's this huge disconnect between academics and practice, right? Knowledge and practice is really like kind of 
not going together. So, so there is a lot of experience that practitioners have where models have worked, but one really needs to kind of look at how to scale up these kind of models. And scaling doesn't mean copy-pasting similar models everywhere. One, A, it has to be contextualized. B, it has to be, uh, you know, has to be, like I said, very decentralized kind of approach to developing these kind of participatory pathways. But there is no other way other than, you know, getting communities involved in it because stakes are quite high for them. If they are not part of the negotiations, then it really is unfair and you will get a huge pushback when it comes to implementing these kind of, you know, these kind of exclusionary kind of systems. So uh, what I see you pointing out here is this stark difference between how in this exclude or using other models, it would be a very exclusionary system versus um, I know about the work being done that Dakshin is doing and about how you all have, as you like to call it, community-led fisheries programs. And so what how do you all go about in the field implementing these? What are issues in the field? How do you all manage and work around problems you all come up in the field? If you have any examples, if you have any um, scenarios that you could describe where you have come across certain issues and worked around them to develop a more sustainable program. So, uh, yeah, so one of the Examples I can think of is our work in Lakshadweep, for instance, where, you know, like I said, uh, a very central approach to fisheries management or fisheries governance really doesn't, uh, you know, really doesn't help any implementation on the ground. And those kind of exclusionary models have their problems. So what we try to uh, do is to implement a more, you know, participatory framework. Uh, you have heard about co-management kind of frameworks, which are quite increasingly being described as, you know, potential solutions to existing uh, problems. Now, we try to kind of implement a fisheries uh, co-management initiative in Lakshadweep. So, Lakshadweep also has uh, one of the major sources of revenue for Lakshadweep is through fisheries and the kind of fishing practice that is, uh, you know, kind of dominant there is the pollen line tuna fishing, which is, again, a very inherently sustainable fishing practice. Right? Comparatively, it's like way more sustainable than many other practices. Uh, however, given that the, the, the central interest is to actually show fisheries as something that, like to maximize production is the central goal of fishery, all fisheries management is, how do you ensure that production is at, at its optimum? Right, which is why you have concepts like maximum sustainable yield or optimal sustainable yield kind of frameworks. Uh, but it, it's never con done in consultation with officials. Do they want to change from, say, existing sustainable practices to, say, much more, you know, kind of mechanized or much more kind of industrialized or scaled up kind of fishing practices? So while there was this push to kind of uh, improve the yields of fisheries, you know, from Lakshadweep, uh, what we were trying to do is to kind of help sustain the golden line tuna fisheries itself to see, you know, how one can try and achieve better, you know, sustainability outcomes in, in, in the fisheries itself 
because certain kinds of unsustainable practices had started creeping into the fisheries. Like, for instance, with the introduction of bigger boats, larger boats, through subsidies and all of that, uh, you know, the scale of operations kind of changed. One of the main inputs that needs to go into this fisheries is the bait fish. Uh, so they practice what is called the live bait for the night tuna fishing. So they extract a lot of live bait from shallow near shore reef systems, right? And Lakshadweep is at completely at all, you know, they're all reef, coral reef at alls that are where humans have inhabited. So highly limited systems that way. And what we were trying to do, because of these changes, unsustainable kind of transitions that had come into the fisheries, uh, people were kind of forced, if one may, to kind of adapt these practices. So some of the practices that were highly problematic was the use of light, you know, LED, strong LED lights to attract bait. And that kind of led to, uh, you know, quite a lot of unsustainable harvest. And light also kind of affects the natural behavior, reproductive behaviors and all of that of fish. So it had its own consequence, you know, while people did identify that this is a very problematic practice because there were no other, because there's no uh, kind of regulatory frameworks or enforcement to kind of, uh, you know, regulate this use of light, LED lights in, in fishing, there were kind of problems coming up in the fishery. So there were a section of people who were not using those kind of practices and there were others who were. And, uh, you know, and there were no regulatory frameworks to kind of limit these kind of practices. So we worked with the fisher communities and developed a model where you know, in consultation with the fisheries department, local government agencies, they decided to kind of ban some of these problematic practices. So one is the use of LED lights. The second was the use of really fine mesh nets, what they call locally mosquito nets, kind of catch the bait because while you're doing those harvests, it also affects the, the you know, their breeding grounds, the habitats. It also affects a lot of the, it also extracts a lot of the juveniles and eggs and all of that while they are at it. So they identify this, but they just needed someone to kind of facilitate these conversations. So by getting the, the local administration and the fishing communities together to address these problems, sitting at the same table and discussing these issues, Again, they themselves, you know, kind of suggested three bands. And the final one was, you know, the discarding of tuna waste into the lagoons because that used to happen extensively. And like I said, though they understand that it's problematic because a particular board doesn't, you know, stick to these regulations. It kind of, the, the classical tragedy of the commons kind of issues played out, but they did manage to kind of collectively decide to ban these practices. We are in the process of getting some kind of formal, uh, you know, recognition to those bans. And once that's in place, you know, the communities are happy to comply with those. So you know, because it's a participatory process, enforcement and compliance is already there, right? And yeah, so that's the advantage of those kind of approaches. In the Lakshadweep, we've also been practicing uh, a kind of monitoring system, a collaborative monitoring, participating monitoring system with the fisher communities themselves. So in, back in 2015, we had extensive consultations with local fisher communities. 
because there was this concern about no data on fish catch or resource availability. And consequently, a lot of problematic data was available, which was not clearly in sync with what's happening on the ground. So we had encouraged fisher communities to embark on this uh, you know, monitoring program where they themselves completely on a voluntary basis participate in this data collections system and over four years we had collected more than 4,000 data sets of you know fishing expeditions and, and some some really good insights into what's happening in terms of trends with the fishery you know what's what's working what's not working and this protocol itself was co-created with the community so there was that sense of ownership and pride and the way we incentivized their participation is by kind of Having these annual calendars rolled out, and you know the participants were kind of highlighted in those calendars. Like we picked twelve best, you know, boats who participated in this, and kind of give them that coverage, and that was incentive enough you know, for them to participate. So we just come up with these kind of, you know, very contextual, very participatory frameworks, and and it also depends on your presence on the ground, the kind of trust you build with. Once that's done, you know you can actually you can actually have a lot of different kind of you know sustainable activities embedded in. So um, what I heard from this and what I've understood from this is comparing it to a different to a different standpoint is whereas in more Western in Western practices or in developed countries we have a central authority system that gives the rules and it, they're followed whereas to really have these rules implemented we need to have a incentivized community involved outlook towards a uh, fisheries management and how do you see that playing out in possibly the rest of the country or the rest of the de in developing nations all over the world? So I wouldn't call it an incentivized kind of participation. There is already incentive for communities to participate. And they, like I said, it's, it's unfair to assume that they do not see value in it, right? The only problem is that there is no powers to kind of ensure that this happens because of the open access nature of the fisheries. You know, there is no... There's no incentive for people to kind of participate in, in uh, you know, any kind of sustainability or conservation activity because it is open access, right? So if you do certain good practices in your own backyards, it doesn't prevent others coming and fishing from your areas, right? So it doesn't really, there's no, that's where the incentive is missing for community. So it requires a little bit of devolution of powers back to the communities where they are actively you know, be becoming the stewards of their own resources, right? Rather than waiting for the government to come into or the center or the state to come and do something for this. You know, because like I said, given the scale and diversity of the sector, they're very difficult for a particular agency to kind of uh, you know, monitor and 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 regulate these systems. So without participation, it's not going to happen. So what you need to do is create more platforms where participation can happen. Look at how one can devolve more powers to those, you know, institutions on the ground, or help with those institutions on the ground that that can actually 
actively engage in, in you know sustainable practices. Uh, to answer the other part, where you know how do you see this kind of working out in other places rather than these being very small examples from specific sites? Um, it's not all that bad, right? I mean the the Increasingly, these kind of languages are coming into fisheries governance, the National Marine Fisheries Policy in 2020, I guess, also talks about how sustainability needs to be the central kind of, you know, need to be placed centrally when it comes to fisheries development, but also talks about devolving of powers, uh, you know, setting up more co-management kind of institutions. Though in paper it's still those kind of languages do exist so that's that's happening in say countries like india there are a couple of states in the south who have actually made it mandatory that you know through, through legislation made it mandatory that every village has its own co-management committees it still remains in paper but that there's clear indication that that will is there to make those transitions now it requires you know Actual implementation on the ground requires a lot more effort to be invested on the ground, and, and this would require this, the state and the center to work more closely with, say, civil society organizations and others. Embed the right kind of capacities needed to kind of make those systems function. And that's possible, but if it, the will seems to be there, now it's, it's, a, it's a matter of how you make these from, say, you know, words in a, in a particular act or, or a policy to actually implementable tangible things on the ground there are that's where these kind of case studies can be very critical so that it's possible these are the kind of systems you need to put in place uh, the rest of the world i do uh, in many of the other parts like south asia southeast southeast asia in particular there's a significant amount of work being done again village level or you know grassroots level kind of uh, institutions are being increasingly recognized and, and certain countries have already kind of taken efforts to devolve powers and, and you know help these smaller institutions kind of empower these you know institutions when it comes to fisheries governance. So um, as one last question that I have for you um, to just end this talk is Ending on a bit of a softer note is, what would you like to say to budding marine biologists? How would, what would you want to say to them for a sustainable future and how they look at more, at look at developing countries and think about managing their fisheries? Well, I would say, you know, A, why a lot of these courses do teach you Sort of the theoretical aspects of you know how how systems work, especially coastal marine systems work. When it comes to engaging on issues like conservation, fisheries management, resource management, it's not a biological problem to fix. It's a social, it's an economic kind of a problem to fix. So you do need to kind of be able to while you use your learnings as you know, larger systemic understanding, you really need to also be able to uh, be open to still learn a lot more, because especially in places like developing countries, there's still so much to be understood about these systems that they are deeply ingrained social, cultural, economic systems that 
you need to be able to kind of also let go of certain baggages. Like I said, you know, the conventional models of how conservation is done is all once you get to the field and see how things pan out, you need to be able to let go of some of those learnings and bring in new kinds of learnings and understanding, keep things a lot more open, be a lot more humble and, you know, ready to receive a lot of, you know, information and knowledge from the people you work with on the ground because everything I've learned pretty much is very little from textbooks, but a lot by engaging with people and communities. And that's where the, the actual tangible solutions, if you want, that would probably come if you keep your eyes and ears and mind open to these kind of feedback. Thank you, Naveen, for joining us and giving us this insightful talk. You really help bring out the need to look at fisheries through a sociological lens. Now, this doesn't sound like a problem for everybody, though, does it? Well, that's not true. Over 97% of the worldwide fisheries production comes from developing nations. And how they are managed can seriously impact the future of this food source. So let's all think about this important take on managing the fisheries of developing nations as we move forward. And that's all we have for today. But I hope you join us again on our Salty Science Safari.